Hello and welcome back to Parallel Passion. First, I'd like to sincerely thank everyone who continues to support the show on Patreon. You're the best. If you wish to join these awesome people, go to patreon.com slash or follow the links in the show notes. Thank you so much. I want to start by apologizing for the lack of new episodes lately. I try to keep the interviews as time indifferent as possible. The idea is that you could listen to any episode regardless of when you discover the podcast. But these are weird times and I have to address the elephant in the room, which is the new coronavirus. You would think that with everyone locked at home, it would be easy to find guests. But the truth is, we're all stressed out and tired of working at home. So the last thing we want to do is discuss our hobbies with strangers on the internet. I'm trying my best to get new guests, and if you have any recommendations, I'm always open to suggestions, so feel free to email me. But until then, I can't promise I'll stick to any schedule. So with that out of the way, I'm excited to welcome my next guest, Tobias Pfeiffer. We met recently while hosting after parties for an online conference. After chatting for just a bit, I was certain I had to have him on my podcast. We discussed everything from mentoring to public speaking to organizing meetups, philosophy, dealing with people, and much, much more. Enjoy! Hi, Toby. Welcome to Parallel Passion. Hi, Mio. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on. Oh, it's, it's my honor, uh, definitely. And uh, especially now to restart after this uh, thing is <laughs> running all over the world. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be back at the, the recording booth and have someone to talk to. Well, we're very glad to be that someone to talk to, <laughs> especially after there have already been so many amazing guests on here. <laughs> like, I feel a bit of the pressure. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. Um, and uh, before we before we start with everything, uh, could you give like a, a short summary of like who you are and what do you do? So my short summary is usually very long, but I try <laughs> to keep it short. So um, my name is Toby. I'm based out of uh, Berlin. I do run the Ruby user group in Berlin for the past like I don't know seven years, 2012, no eight, almost eight years. Um, I run the Ruby Corns. Which is on our run the Rubicons. I'm a coach at the Rubicons, uh, which is like a Rails Girls Berlin uh, study and learning group for the past like uh, seven years. Uh, what else do I do? I do open source. So I'm the current maintainer of Simple Cough in the Ruby ecosystem, among like other things, and also Benchy in the Elixir ecosystem. Otherwise, right now I'm a uh, freelancer doing some projects, but that might change uh, very soon and I might be at a position at a well-known Ruby company. And I think I probably forgot <laughs> a lot of it already <laughs> again, but that's sort of what I do in the in the programming. Oh, I also speak at conferences and stuff. Like, yeah, and, and we'll come to all of that. But uh, yeah, well, uh, congratulations on your new employment, I guess. Uh, if this is if this is something you were you were looking for i don't know <laughs> yes yes definitely it's like it's honestly it's a kind of like a little bit um of a dream i mean it's not it's not official yet but i mean i guess i can say whenever this is published probably might be official um i'm very likely to join uh to join shopify and like so they're opening a, an office in berlin oh and like i kind of always wanted to to work uh, there I saw like lots of great talks and like obviously the scale and my interest for performance and stuff. So it's something that I'm like very intrigued by. Yeah, that's nice. I didn't know they're they're opening an office in Europe. That's cool because otherwise they're in Canada, right? Yes, exactly. 
Uh, well, yeah, con- congrats again. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I have to mention, like, we we sort of met virtually on Pivorak. Uh, so, like, shout out to shout out to them. Uh, it was an uh, online conference uh, in in these times, which was uh, surprisingly surprisingly fun. Like, I it really. Sure, it, it wasn't the same as um, in in person, but I really really enjoyed the the activities, especially like they also did like the after, because um, for me the whole point of conferences is like what happens after the talks, and uh, they did it really well where they basically made Zoom rooms where we could just hang out and, and it was it was really fun. Yeah, it was uh, it was great. It was also so funny because like you were one of the room hosts, I was one of the room hosts, and then you know we like almost everybody in my room, save for my friend Roman, left, and so we were talking about personal stuff in the room, and then basically you and Aaron and like some <laughs> other people from your room came and like invaded our room. That was my- <laughs> it was pretty cool. Yeah, no, it it was it was fun. Um and um while we we're at conferences and you mentioned you do public speaking, um how how did you begin doing that? Like what was your first public talk? What was your like why why did you start that? Do you in, like enjoy talking to people from since ever or is this something like a learned skill? That's a great question. Uh I think I've always enjoyed it. So always like in school, I did the presentations and stuff and university. I also always did our presentations, but like the real reason I started doing is it is because I wanted to spread the love of a project basically. So my first open source project that I started and contributed to way before I even started working was Shoes 4, which was a re-implementation of Shoes, which is like the old Ruby UI toolkit way back in the day that uh, why the lucky stiff road. Oh, yeah, that's that goes way back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So and like I basically joined the whole Ruby community like shortly after he left, and like I found shoes while I like learned Ruby and like joined the community. And like at the time, like doing UI stuff was always something that I really really wanted to do, but that I felt that just sucked everywhere. Everything was so micro like put this at this pixel position and like give this text <laughs> and do this and whatnot and now redraw and whatnot it was so bad but you know like shoes was just amazing simple and good so i was there oh i want to help these people and so i did i worked on it and then to get to the talk uh, i was at rotslav ab where my friends from askera there like they organized an entire bus going from berlin to rotslav mm-hmm. uh to be there and they announced that there would be lightning talks and my friend anna basseur was sitting next to me and he was like toby it is your duty to go up there and do a presentation about shoes. I was like, oh my God. And then I was the first, no, I first the second lightning talk. And the first one was, was actually uh, Steve Klapnick, oh. who at the time was like the main maintainer of shoes. So I also knew him. And so like, he also like kind of propped me up a bit. You know, at the time I was still a student. So I was very nervous speaking in front of this huge uh, Ruby crowd. And it was just, you know, why shoes is great and like show what it can do. And from that time, I started submitting talks almost everywhere, but I always got rejected like, <laughs> I don't know, 15 times in a row or something. Like I almost gave up. Yeah, that's like so bad when when you're sending out the CFB. Yeah, it's just either the worst is when you don't even hear back. That for me is like, oh, like please just <laughs> yeah. tell me that I wasn't like selected. Uh, but yeah. Um, and yeah, getting a rejection also, also stings. And I, I find it's like, 
unless someone invites you, it's very hard to get to like the uh, proper conferences. Yeah, I started. It's definitely true. It started getting better for me after some time. So after all these fifteen, like I was almost ready to give up on like public speaking and whatnot. And then there was JRubyConf. I think it was 2013 or 2014 in uh, Berlin. And Choose Four was has like had like a JRuby base. I was I also did like Google Sum of Code with like the JRuby people, and they didn't have many talks to be quite honest. Uh, so I got in there. So that was my first like full length talk. Uh, where I could talk about stuff. And mm-hmm. that was a great experience. And then later I learned a bit how to write my proposals better to focus them like more on the audience. I got my good friend, uh, Jason R. Clark, who I often sent my abstracts to. And he's just brilliant at writing abstracts and correcting them. And so he always like improves my abstracts by at least like 30%. <laughs> and as, as kind of sad as it is that that skill plays into like getting accepted uh, so much, that really helped my acceptance rate. But obviously, I still uh, get rejected. Uh, quite sometimes yeah no it's hard i've been on the other side of the selection as well and it's it's hard because you don't know how good of a presenter a person is um and even if you're doing the blind ones or whatever it's like either you're selecting based on their writing skills which don't translate necessarily to presenting skills it's it's hard to to pick speakers i guess it's very hard like a year or two years later, I actually ended up uh, organizing JRubyConf and uh, by extension also a bit of EuroCamp uh, that year because we always did them together. And yeah, it was very hard uh, picking the talks, like whole full blind process and whatnot. But yeah, it's tough, but it really helps seeing it from the other side once. So you can see, you know, what to watch out for when you write your own proposals. So I think that also was an experience that immensely helped me write better proposals for the reviewers. Mm-hmm. But what was the thing that hooked you that, that for you was like, oh, I, I want to do more of this. I want to do more talks. <laughs> This is kind of an existential question. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny because I remember I was going to a a wedding of a friend. Uh, Like another one of my friends, he works at Facebook. He was like, he does like five talks uh, a year. And then it was like, Toby, like sometimes you do like, I don't know, 12 talks in a year or even more. Like, why do you do it? Or how do you do it? I was sitting there at this face of like existential crisis. Like, why am I doing this? Like, I do not know. (laughs) And I think it's kind of like, I love sharing my knowledge and my passion uh, for things. So like, be it shoes, be it like some form of clean code or like, be it social and personal skills, whatever I want to talk about. I just love to share that, get the feedback. I love to... Although it's a very hard and long process, especially for some talks that I did, like the one about AlphaGo and like the game of Go, I love what it teaches me, the whole process. Like I learned so much more, like when you write a blog post or when you present a topic that you think you know a lot about, when you really want to present it, you learn so much more about it. And I think in the end, when I'm really honest to myself, part of it is also that I like the attention. Mm-hmm. Like I, I like that I'm like on the stage being the one that like some person that gets atten- attention and that people kind of look up to and be like, oh, like this person uh, says something. But I think mostly it's the sharing and then also the being there, meeting the people, talking to them. And the best thing is, of course, if somebody comes to you afterwards, like, hey, that really helped me. Yeah. Like I did a talk about like Rails, like kind of like Rails architecture, what I think is missing, what's wrong. And so many people came to me and said, hey, this is such a great talk. I now have the perfect talk to send to my team to explain to them why we should use form objects or something. And that mm-hmm. makes me super happy. Like that's that's the best outcome. 
Yeah, yeah, I I agree, and I also uh, agree with you that it like making a talk like forces you to really research the matter more. And because every time you you want to explain something, you really have to have a good knowledge of it, because otherwise it's hard for you to explain it. And like as soon as you're explaining it, you're like, oh, I don't maybe really understand it, and then you you read more, and then suddenly like it it clicks for you. Oh, definitely, it's uh like especially that AlphaGo talk. Like I knew like AlphaGo was like the first AI that met like a professional Go. Uh, player and like an even game and even the best player in the world at the time mm-hmm. and i knew a lot of computer go because i was writing go engines and stuff but it made me really like read the original paper like front to back front to back front to back <laughs> front to back like annotations everything watch talks until i really understood it. and it was such a challenge to explain it well because to understand what it does you need to understand monte carlo research but you also need to understand deep convolutional neural networks and packing all of that into a 40-minute talk uh, that is like goes from you know nothing to you know how this thing works roughly was like the biggest talk challenge in my life. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Like a lot of these things go completely over my head um, when when it comes to machine learning and all of that. It's like, oh yeah, you have like multiple layers. Like, like how many? Well, <laughs> how many you want? It's like no, just like tell me an exact number. Like I don't know. How did, why did you pick three instead of five? Like, well, I don't know. Yeah, I must say, I had no clue about machine learning before that. And I was like, okay, am I fine going to present this without knowing like the specifics? And like, I'm the person like, I am not. So I read an entire like online book about machine learning just for that talk, mm. just to present it and never use the knowledge ever again. <laughs> Wow, but that's uh, that's dedication. Uh, that's and like, do you, did you like play Go before, or was there anything specific about this that you wanted to make a talk about AlphaGo? Uh, yes, I did play uh, Go before, and one of the like aspects that always fascinated me with Go was at the time when I started playing Go. Uh, no computer could be could beat like even a strong amateur player. Mm-hmm. Not not even speaking of a pro player, because there's so many possibilities mm-hmm. in the game of Go that also make the game very interesting. And the the game is kind of like its own flow that evolves from a, from its rules, but it's not dictated by the rules. And so we even organized in my university at the time. We did organize a course about computer Go and like programming a GoBot like by ourselves with the help from some from one professor. Nice. We organized a Go tournament and we went to lots of Go tournaments and played. So this was something that was super interesting to me. And it also was a bit of like um, a personal thing because I once went to RubyConf, which was, I forgot which, which year it was, 2016, 2017 or something. Mm-hmm. The year it was in um, San Antonio. And I, <laughs> I gave a talk about Computer Go. And but at the time I talked about Monte Carlo Tree Search because that was the best known method at the time. Mm-hmm. And the paper was published like three months later. And like nobody knew, but even before that they had already beaten a pro player, but it was all kept <laughs> secret. So for like the five months, like nobody knew that like they had this new method that bet pro players. And I was like, oh, it's still gonna take like 20 years until we can beat <laughs> pro players, because that was like the major opinion at the time by like all the experts involved, but by incorporating machine learning, they pushed it forward so much. And it was like, damn it. Like I basically, I didn't lie to the people because I didn't know better. Yeah, there was yeah, no better course. information available to me, but I was like, 
damn, I, I need to make this, this better talk. And then <laughs> and it was hugely interesting for me. And then also like, I mean, I read it before, but it was like also an incentive to really dig into it and share this knowledge. Yeah, I remember like, uh, I don't know when it was in the 90s when the the computer beat like uh, Gasparo with chess and everyone was like, yeah, but that was just like brute forcing. And that's because <laughs> computers are so like fast and processing, but they can never match a human at like, they will never be able to match a human at something like, like go or something like that is that cannot be brute forced and then and then this comes out of nowhere <laughs> like oh wait okay <laughs> maybe maybe the times they are uh, they are changing <laughs> they are and like one of the funny things is that people try to apply neural networks to go way before that and you know it didn't work so people just put it off as you know it doesn't work but you know it didn't work with the approaches from back then with the research from back then with the hardware from back then but you know, take the same ideas and like apply them, change them a bit some years later, and suddenly they work. And then they combine them with the Monte Carlo tree search. So they just were like, this approach is better. We take this, but they com combine them to get the strange, uh, the strange, the strength, sorry, <laughs> uh, the, the strength of every one of those approaches. And then they just ruled. And it was amazing to see, honestly. And what's happening with, with that now? Like it was supposed to be like underlying tech for, for um, something more, right? That was the that was the goal of the AlphaGo. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it was like they wanted to show like how potent it is, but I think mostly they still use it for like what it was used before, like image recognition mm. or something. I don't know if they did anything more with the AI. Like as far as I know, I haven't followed it as closely. They basically stopped development on like most of the uh, AlphaGo stuff because you know it achieved its goal. It mm. met like the strongest human, and like uh, they don't do much that I know of with it anymore, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is kind of sad. Yeah, but that's Google, right? They develop a product <laughs> like, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yeah, but like one thing it really did show and that also, uh, I think his name was Dr. Arjun Wang, like one of the principal researchers said was like a big impact on the success of the project was Google developed these um, custom processing units. Like normally you do like lots of the machine learning on like GPUs, mm -hmm. uh, like on the normal GPU in your machine but just better ones but they had tpus uh, tensorflow processing units they developed and when they started using them on AlphaGo, that was like a huge success and that was one of i think also the showcases like how potent these tpus can be for machine learning yeah no that's like i said to me machine learning is like something that i know i should know more about but it's just like whatever whenever i read something it's like uh yeah no <laughs> this goes over my head <laughs> Uh, maybe I should watch your talk. Maybe then it will make sense. <laughs> well, it's not just about machinery, but sure, watch it. It's like it's it's the it's the talk I am the most proud of. I, I have to okay. say that's that's my favorite talk of myself. Probably because you also invested so much time in into it. Yes, so much time and like so much knowledge uh, condensed, and at least some people understood. And uh, my friend uh, Ellen watched it on one occasion. She's very very good in like machine learning and data science right and she told me that what i said about machine learning and that stuff that is correct and that was <laughs> and i was like <laughs> for something that i just learned for this i'm very happy to hear this <laughs> yeah yeah and I, I know exactly what you mean <laughs> um but I, I saw another talk that seemed interesting to me it was like functioning among humans and it also seems like you did that one several times not as many times as I'd like, sadly, for both talks, actually, to go on a tangent. Okay. I just did the, the AlphaGo talk maybe three times, mm -hmm. uh, including like my practice run at the Ruby User Group Berlin and functioning among humans also, I think, just two times, if I'm not mistaken. But 
both are talks that I would want to do like way more, but specifically the functioning among humans one, because it's something that I know I used to whisper to people, you know, it was like, <laughs> I was new, like I wasn't, I wasn't even working like in the industry yet. I was a student with like, I mean, my university had lots of very practical projects, but I used to go to people that like, I was like, Hey, Luca. Yeah. Like, you know, I think social and communication skills are much more important for a developer than actually like hard technical skills. What do you think about this? <laughs> and mostly people would, you know, they would agree. They would say like, yeah, you know, Toby, I think, I think you're right. And it seemed like such, I don't know, contrary to what I saw, like lots of people portray and lots of conferences. They just, you know, they only have technical talks or mostly technical talks, like not Ruby conference. Ruby conference is often 50-50, but once you go outside of the Ruby bubble or like maybe also JavaScript, but once you go outside of that, it's like hardcore technical talks. And I'm like, I don't know, for like 80 or 90% of the audience, I think what would make them better and happier at their job and with their job would be to know more about social skills, about people skills, about communicational skills. So the talk is kind of my my best of mixtape of like every everything I want people to know about these topics that I can fit into the length of this talk. Yeah, it's it's funny because just today I saw a tweet, I think quoting Jeff Bigham, like the two hardest problems in computer science are people and second, convincing computer scientists that the hardest problem in computer science is people. <laughs> Which is which is so true. Like I, I see it this also from my perspective since I've been like a team lead or engineering manager or whatever you want to call it for the last two jobs. Uh, it was sort of my position, and and I see this more and more. Like you can learn technical skills, and even if you're not like that good at them, you can still like function properly. But if you if you lack social skills, if you lack like you say soft skills, it's it's very hard to function good in, in a team and these are also I think while they're called soft skills I think they're harder to learn most definitely like 100% agree with you like my example is always like in, in the talk I draw like a comparison to like that people with high technical skills but very very low like social skills are like a sea lion like they're always barking at me because I do something wrong they're threatening to harm me because I'm like dumb or whatnot and they ultimately even if they're like twice or thrice as you know efficient at coding than like in quote unquote normal developer um they just drag the motivation of the whole team around like down so much that everyone else is less effective is leaving the team you have food turnover or something like they incur like much more cause and trouble than they're worth and i just want people to see this more and see how they can be better and like I, I just saw the slides and there was like um not much context around them, but I would like you to explain the theory X versus theory Y. I didn't completely grasp what that was about. Uh yeah. The <laughs> Man, you did your research. Um <laughs> That's by the way, just like on a tangent, that's the sentence I love hearing the most. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> look. <laughs> So uh, just before I go with this, like the slides are usually, or my slides are always meant to be accompanied by me talking. They're just my notes to deliver the talk. As it should be. Like the, the slides should not carry the entire content. They yeah. should be there like as a prop. So few reacts and few why I don't have like the year numbers uh, at hand right now, but I think it was sometime was developed sometime around the 1960s even, which was uh, a theory of motivation, which is one of my like favorite topics of these um 
of these like let's say soft skills or social skills topics and theory of motivation and management where theory y basically uh, theory x let's start with that basically says that okay people are inherently not motivated to work and they're they're lazy they want to avoid work and they will do bad work what follows from that is a management strategy of micromanagement mm-hmm. because people are lazy, like they're like unwilling and unable to work. You need to supervise them closely. You always need to remind them to work. You need to give them concrete instructions on how their that work should be done. Mm-hmm. And Fury Y presents uh, the opposite. Fury Y says, okay, people are willing and able to work. So what you should best do is sort of get out of the way, get the distractions out of the way, and they will work on their own and they will achieve the benefit. And there's like studies accompanying with that. And in general, like theory why works much, much better. There's some, I think, exceptions where it's like some some factories, Fury X might uh, work better, whereas usually Fury Y works better, but it also has like a whole like cultural background that is very dif- difficult. So in some cultures, it might be different. Yeah, And I find this really interesting to explain because there are also there are Fury X companies and the Fury Y companies and there's Fury X people and Fury Y people and while we say usually Fury Y works better there is an interesting thing happening when you put like a Fury Y employee into a Fury X company or like the other way around so when they're mismatched rarely met like a Fury X contributor they exist I have met some and it was very Weird for me as a Fury white person that somebody wants to be micromanaged down to like the smallest detail. I was like, okay, mm. this is not cool. Like, I don't know how to do this. Yeah, especially in open source, you would think that you need to be a, like you say, theory why in order to even be interested because it's not like there's, I don't know, no one is forcing you to do it. You're, you're doing it out of your own, like because you want to. Yeah. Most most definitely. I mean, I, you will not find like a Fury X person in uh, open source, I think, unless someone tells them you need to do open source so you can have it <laughs> on your CV or some shit like that. But like, uh, j- just to wrap up on Fury X and Fury Y, the most interesting thing that I find about Fury X and Fury Y is how it ties together basically your worldview or how you view people with your management style. So, you know, you see people as lazy. So your management style is to be like very controlling or you see people as inherently wanting to do good and contribute. And so you get out of the way. And that's something very interesting to think about. Like if you're like a manager or lead, like how do I treat, you know, my team or my colleagues, my coworkers? And what does that say about how I view them? Or as someone who's working somewhere, how does my manager treat me? And what does that say about how they view me? Oh yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I've I've heard this like of course, but not in this uh, like framed in this way of uh, X and and Y. It's an old theory. It's it's a bit flawed uh, in some uh, cases, but it's still like very worthwhile to know about. I think. Cool. Yeah, I, I have to have to read more about it. Uh, but you you mentioned several times now um, the that you run a, a, a meetup or like many of them. I think. Um, <laughs> And uh, it's it's interesting to me because like I also used to run a meetup and um, <laughs> I guess it's a theory why thing. But why why did you start doing it? Was it the same thing as the talks where you just wanted to like uh, help other people and and sort of mentor them, or what was the what was the drive there? So I just realized I've been lying to you before 
because I now <laughs> remember that my first talk ever was actually at the Ruby User Group Berlin. Um, <laughs> and like, how could I ever forget this? Yeah, those don't count, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, th those do count. But the other ones were like my first like conference talks. But um, so it was basically when I started really getting into Ruby was during my uh, Erasmus uh, months in uh, Sweden. Looking at Techniska Öskolan. And like I did like a Ruby Mendicant University, which is like a very intense Ruby course. That's when I really got into shoes, met Steve, also kind of met Piot, and like all of this. And I came back to Berlin and, you know, I was so, I loved Ruby before, but now I love Ruby even more and I want to contribute and like tell people, help people. So I started coaching at Wales Girls and I wanted to promote shoes. So uh, I proposed a talk about shoes at the Ruby User Group Berlin. I still remember it was. It was a great experience. Like I first went there, like looked at one of the talks and it was cool. And then I wanted to speak next. And like they, I still remember like they promoted me as like, uh, try walking in my shoes. We'll learn about shoes. And it was just this amazing community. And I was so happy to be there, give the talk. I was super nervous, but there were very nice people. It's, Especially Marie that was standing in the front row, always nodding, and I was super <laughs> nervous, and that really helped me. It was thundering outside. It was it was very hardcore, and so I was there, basically. And then, so that was around May or June 2012, and then in I think October or November, Tilo, who was then like the main organizer of the user group, sent around an email. Was like, hey, like I got in, I got a kid now, or like it's it's a busy time for me. I need someone to help me organize and run this. And I was like, damn, this is so great. I just found this. This needs to continue. This is very important to me. I feel this is very cool. And But because I was already doing so much stuff with like open source and, and everything, I was like, okay, I'm going to wait two weeks and then I'm going to email Tilo. Surely by then someone would have like emailed them and be like, I'm going to help you. Uh, no. <laughs> no. No. The rater? No, there was not. As, as, a, as a person who used to run a, a user group, no, no one volunteers. <laughs> So yeah, that, that was like, I ended up being the one volunteering. And then I think the first meetup that I moderated was the November one. At first it was very weird to me to be in front of all of these people and stuff. And then like later on, like, like I think for the first couple of months, like Tilo really helped me with everything. And also, um, Nico was there and helped me. But over the time I began to run it like more like myself. It became more like, um, second nature. And now it's like, there's no, no stress or anything getting up on stage, like moderating it because it's just what I do. And it became this like wonderful event in my life where I always say like, it's kind of my birthday party. You know, <laughs> there's all these great people there who I like so much. And I want to talk to each and every one of them. And like, I also get to know like new people and stuff, mm -hmm. but I don't have the time because I have to run the meetup and I always have to run around and be responsible for this and that. So like, although I love everyone, it's time to have time to talk to anyone. And yeah. So the short answer to that is, I simply wanted it to exist, which is basically the same reason why I do most of my volunteering work. Like, mm -hmm. why do I want, like, why did I want to do shoes? Because I want this to exist for the real world. Why did I do Benchy? Because I want there to be like a good benchmarking tool in Elixir. Why do I do the Rubicons? Because I want to have like work in a more diverse environment and I want to support it. And I like, you know, teaching and helping people. Mm -hmm. uh, 
why do I maintain SimpleCov? Because I've used SimpleCov basically all my Ruby life and <laughs> I wanted to be to exist and you know do it. Yeah, can you can you talk a bit more about this Ruby course that, that you mentioned? Like is this like um uh sort of like an advanced course of RailsGuards or is it like what happens next or what is just like you you meet up there? What uh, what's the Yeah, of course. So um Rubicorns, hi to everyone listening. <laughs> um, basically, in, like I mentioned, I came back from Sweden uh, in 2012, if I don't have my years wrong. And that was shortly after we had like the first big Rails Girls workshop. Quickly after, uh, Rails Girls Berlin was found and they did like a huge amount of workshops. Like I think we were doing the most workshops of like anyone. Like we did like 10 or 12 workshops a year for like one or two years. Oh, wow. Organized like by ourselves and like, some of them were like normal, some of them were advanced, but it was always, you know, we, we, we show them this thing, this Ruby, this Rails. Yeah. Like we show them the cake, but then it's like, okay, now it was like our one day weekend. Yeah. yeah and that's yeah. it. Now, now go find your own path. So by the way, Rails Goods Berlin is now called Code Curious, mm -hmm. just so that everyone knows to be more open to, um, different, uh, technologies and also not just girls. And there's a problem with calling girls. Like don't want to get into that, uh, too much. As I was saying, so we wanted to like give them more, give them like more opportunities. So this idea quickly evolved of um, study groups or I think project groups they were called in the beginning. I think um, Sven Fuchs uh, was one of the ones that was like pioneering it and like they quickly founded uh, Ruby Monsters, which have like a great website and also even like more great content that is very uh, approachable that you can check out to learn Ruby and learn Rails and, mm -hmm. you know, all of that. And so each time after workshop, we would be like, hey, who wants to continue doing this? And then uh, we would found new project groups. And the way it worked is you would meet usually once a week somewhere in like some office, some co-working space or whatnot. And it would be like attendees and there would be coaches. And usually it was like, I don't know, like up to eight or nine, maybe 10 attendees, uh, depending on the group. Mm -hmm. And then like two or three coaches to kind of like balance uh, the load. And did you prepare like uh, courses or did everyone had the project and you were there just to help them out or how how does it look? So the idea was to work on one big project together, but first you got to get the basics done because after like one day of Ruby and Rails, people like can barely program. So um, Till and I, we so Till was the name of uh, the other coach or is the name of the other coach. <laughs> and uh, we started preparing some material. Lots of it was like impromptu, like somebody had a question, like what is DNS? We would get a whiteboard and we would, you know, uh, make a drawing of like how DNS works and whatnot. Uh, but lots of it was also a bit prepared, especially in the beginning, but it sort of shifts, but we you know we had to find out, like we were the first ones doing this kind of what you realize quickly is that people like forget so much from one week to the other oh, yeah. that basically half of like the two or three hours would have to be spent on like repeating. Uh, what we did uh, before and you figure this out kind of as you go but at the time I was also teaching a course at university um, about uh, like learning Ruby and Rails and like HTML and CSS oh wow um, and so I reused some of that material uh, for the Ruby corns and so we were like the second project group ever founded and I mean right now none of the f actual founding members uh, are regulars uh, anymore uh, but like some people that joined like half a year later are still there. And it's amazing, like, because we always had then new people joining and stuff. But right now, like everyone at the Ruby Corns, or like almost everyone, we have some new members who are like junior developers who are looking for a job, but most of the, the older regular members are like 
mid-level developers or like some of like really even like senior developers or whatnot and it's just you know it's amazing how all of this grew and it's also oftentimes it's more of like um, a support Mm -hmm. uh, group kind of you know it's not always about coding or how can i do this like that also happens but sometimes you know you just had a very shitty week and then it's like a safe space where you can go like (laughs) that sucks and then everybody's like oh what's happened toby tell me about it and then we go like oh that sucks so (laughs) it's uh it's great and so it's it's a big part of my life i would say like lots of my friends are like from that specific group yeah, we had something like that here as well. Um, friends of mine did like after Rails Girls, uh, I think they call it Code Cats. And the, the point was to basically get together and everyone would have their own project and you would be there as a mentor to help and also like try to explain some, some concept, I don't know, like Git or, or whatever, uh, to, to make at least some sense because it is, this like what we do is a very wide field and like yeah. when, you, when you're in it for a while it doesn't seem like you know much but whoa we like there's a lot to learn <laughs> to to do what we do uh, i love that experience of like you know coaching your first Wales girls workshop you know like the questions people ask it's questions you have to ask <laughs> yourself and like five years ten years like depending on how long you do programming like okay What's a class? Why do I need a class? What's a text editor? What's an IDE? What do I need? Like, what's an HTTP request? Like, how does this thing fit into that thing? Yeah. It's, um, it's amazing. And it helped me like so much. And it's also fun to think about. Like, I was doing all this, as I said, like before studying in a job still for like kind of years to come or like a couple of years. So I did all of this mentoring and everything that you usually, you know, associate with like a senior engineer. I did that while I was. Well, I wasn't even working in the industry, which was a, <laughs> a fun experience. But you also mentioned you were a teacher at university. So did you do that before? Was that like an, a career path or is it just like, were you helping out or how did you, how did you do that? It's just like one of these random amazing things that happens to you when you just do the stuff that you love. <laughs> so... Uh, at these uh, Red Girls uh, workshops, like at some point, like we had some people that did the introduction, then we didn't have anyone doing the introduction. Then like the evening before the workshop, they emailed me like, hey, Toby, can you do the introduction? I was like, oh, shit. And then I did the introduction. <laughs> From that point on, I was doing the introduction. And at uh, some point, the then uh, organizer uh, of this, uh, my dear friend, Diana Günther, uh, came to me and was like, hey, Toby, uh, the HU Berlin, which is like one of the big uh, universities uh, in Berlin, like the career center approached us uh, if we had anyone, you know, that would want to do a course uh, teaching like uh, women programming there that they want to offer to just, you know, anyone like an introduction to doing this. Mm-hmm. And I can think of no better person than you to do it. Would you want to do it? And I said, hell yeah <laughs> and so you know we went to them like her and me together and talking about like what would be the content what could i do and stuff and then uh, at the time i think yeah i had my bachelor's at the time because i came back and it wasn't my master's so uh, i was teaching that course while i was still um yeah a student interesting it's yeah very interesting like i i, I do give a talk at uh, university as a as a like with the um, teacher who was my mentor at masters but uh yeah <laughs> to do the whole course or like something like that oh that's uh that's that's a lot of work it is but i mean it was also like it was like not a graded course it was just something that didn't go into the main study so wasn't it yeah, teaching to computer science yeah still true but i don't know it was something that i like doing and i mean let's say i mean they paid 
a good amount of money, but like if I take all the preparation into account that went into it, it was probably not much. But like, you know, I enjoyed it and even like uh some people there then eventually joined the Rubicorns and are friends of mine now and like cool. uh stuff like this. So I really like I also have the feeling that I managed to impact, you know, some of these people's life mm-hmm. positively. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's that's just great for me. Yeah, it's it's interesting how like a couple of random things in life or like being at a certain place at a certain time completely changes your course and by effect like courses of life of so many other people yeah some sometimes like i i think when i when i journal or where i when i write down things i'm like i'm only here because i met this certain person like at this random party one day and then like everything <laughs> followed from that it's just so bizarre like what would happen if i wouldn't wouldn't go there right yeah like do, do you want to hear something of in that vein from from my life of course <laughs> so like uh all through my bachelor's i wanted to be a security researcher i wanted to be like a, a security engineer okay basically uh that that's what i like doing like i did like i basically learned ruby because metasploit like a big like exploitation framework is written in ruby that was kind of the clincher versus python hmm. um i like reds a bit better than django and like so i did this and then we had this big course in like my fifth semester which was called Software Technics, right? So Software Engineering 2 or something. We did this huge project on like, with like Ruby on Rails. Like we had like a team of, team of teams, like 50 people, like divided into different scrum teams, the whole scrum routine. We had Cucumber. We had Data Mapper and like whatnot. It was really cool, really stressful. I helped lots of people, but that's not the main point. The main point is then like we also had lots of, uh, literature that they recommended to us. Uh, and I was reading one of the books in preparation of the exam, which was uh, The Age of Samurai by Jonathan Rasmussen, uh, which, I mean, we learned about age of practices before all of that, but that book really showed me how great it is to work in a team, work together and build something mm-hmm. together in this environment with, where you trust other people. And I read this book and I was like, this is what I want to do, you know, like <laughs> I, I want to build things with people. I want to contribute to something. I just don't want to, you know, analyze something, be frustrated and kind of like destroy it by finding like its fault. I want to build things with people. And that changed, uh, that book changed my whole career, basically. Yeah. I decided for something else. Yeah, no, like I, I have a completely different story. So I was a, I was a PHP developer and interesting in like business and i read rework by uh dhh and jason fried mm-hmm. and i was like how can these guys like work so little and get so much done at that time there were like <laughs> i think eight people total at, at uh 37 signals which was still the name of the company and i was like what is this rails thing what is this ruby i, I have to <laughs> I have to check it out and like yeah the rest is history <laughs> here i am uh, talking nice. to you right <laughs> um <laughs> But I think this also ties to uh, philosophy, which uh, you said is also one of the things that um, is important to you and that you uh, think about a lot. Can you like uh, expand on that? Uh, yes, I can. But it's like it's sort of sad on one hand because I don't read or like do much philosophy myself anymore. It was something that I did a lot when I was in high school. Mm. Uh, basically, I read um, Sophie's World. Uh, which okay. is a brilliant book that I can recommend to anyone. It's basically kind of like a children's book, or not children, 
young teenage young adults so i was at the time the right group but it's it's for anyone because it goes through the history of philosophy and like teaches you the important concepts in philosophy during these times of periods in like an easy and enjoyable way which is uh you know which is great and which really got me thinking a lot about things and that was a very i don't know it was a very important period in my life where i then also started thinking about things you know i don't know what does happiness mean to me what does uh, friendship mean to me and what does this mean to me and what does that mean to me and i actually started writing them down i have like somewhere on my hard drive i still have like a 60 no maybe 50 page document or something where i wrote down essays on like lots of these thoughts mm. And I would say that most of them still hold true today. And yeah, and then I just read like lots of more philosophy. So that book was by Jostein Garda. And I read lots of more of his books. I read lots of like Asian uh, philosophy. So mm-hmm. I read like Sun Tzu, The Art of War. I mm-hmm. read the Tao, The King. And that was all like my early study days or uh, before. And I think it taught me a lot, but it, at best, like, you know, it taught me like, to think about concepts or how you can think about concepts, how you can get further uh, with these. And it's hard to explain, but it's, uh, I think it's hugely important to my life uh, still. There's also like lots of quotes, lots of thoughts always, you know, running around in my head and that I want to think about and improve on and help me define, you know, what's, what's life for me basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a like a book I recommend a lot, uh, "Guide to the Good Life" uh, by William Irvine, and it's it's basically a book on stoicism. But it it begins like the the first couple of chapters is basically saying that in in old Greek times the most important thing was choosing a school, and going to that school was then basically defining your uh, philosophy of of life, and. His point is that like he he doesn't care if you pick stoicism or not. He tries to pursue that like stoicism is for him the best choice. Mm-hmm. But what he's trying to say is like pick a life philosophy, like pick something that you follow, pick something that like you you aim your life at because otherwise you're just walking around aimlessly without knowing what you really want, what makes you happy or like what fulfills you really like because it's not materialism it's not checking off countries of the all the countries i've visited like find actually what what makes you happy what fulfills you yes and i I think i think that's the well at least for me that's the point of like life philosophy just yeah like you said knowing what you actually want from life or at least trying to find out right yes i mean like really it helped me a lot at the time. At the time where I started reading this, I was kind of sad because something in my life went wrong. And like really thinking about this, what are the implications? What is this? What is that? Really, uh, you know, helped me find the happy path again. And it's kind of like uh, a path I've ever been on. And it was uh, kind of funny because like, I was at like a, a bigger birthday party and we had like an introduction game and like people would, down, would write down questions and then people would randomly ask each other these questions. And then people would ask me, you know, you know, what's happiness to you? And then I give this kind of like longer answer and then they stare at me. It's like, wow, that's very, you know, well thought out and kind of prepared. Like I was going to say, I'm happy when I eat good food. I was like, yeah, I mean, that's also happiness, but you know. I know, I know what you mean. Um, and I think in general, at least for me, uh, I, I came to this world way too late. And looking back, I'm like, oh, why didn't I read this when I was 20? <laughs> but most likely, if I would read it then, I wouldn't get it the same way I get it now. 
Um, although you said you read it in high school, so maybe maybe I was just immature. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it's it depends on what you do, but I think I think you'd get it. I think I think it would help. Maybe it depends on what book you read. Like I like I read Tao to King when I was like eighteen or nineteen, which is like which is a book like a philosophy book by Laozi, and it's like. You know, like it has so many annotations. You always have to check the annotations. And then I had to read the book like three times until like I kind of understood what was going on and what was he actually saying? What are the metaphors he's using to to express himself? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's very, very hard to get. Whereas like Sophie's World, it's really explained in like the simplest terms possible. And that really helps, you know, get the thought process going and gives you like some of these like really interesting thought experiments that like the philosophers of old uh, came up with and that kind of gets the ball rolling and then you can like gradually kind of read more complex stuff mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but i guess at some time then university has stopped which is always something that like why i said it's sad it's always a bit sad to me because i knew i enjoyed philosophy so much like you you must imagine like in my still like when i was a student my whole room i had like about 30 or 40 quotes put on the wall just on like a little paper that like meant a lot to me mm -hmm. and you know so that i don't actively pursue this or read much philosophical like really like primary philosophy books anymore is sometimes something where i go like ah i should read this more but i'm like ah i don't have the time and now i want to do this other thing and yeah the, the problem with this kind of books is that they they are not easily digestible. Like it's not a book you read on uh, on the sea. I mean, you 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 can read it at the seaside, but you'll read one book and then you'll think. Well, oh, sorry, you read one page, and then you'll you'll think about that page like for the rest of the day, something <laughs> like that. True. Although I must say, I was always a bit the odd one out. I I remember like in twelfth grade we were going to I think Prague, and like while we were waiting for like the teachers show up or something, I read Sun Tzu, The Art of War, because it's like, it's a very small book. I was sitting there, I was reading Sun Tzu, The Art of War, or like Tao Te King. Uh, I was uh, infamous for reading that during the uh, pre-math course for university. And at one point, like a girl looks at me, is like, are you reading Tao Te King in the pre-math course? I was like, yeah. My mom always tells me I should read this, but like, like, don't you need to pay attention? It's like, ah, oh, it's okay. I can, I can do the math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but I, you know, some of these books, I, I know I have like uh, the manual from, uh, well, which is sort of like an adaptation of uh, Epictetus's work. And it's, I think it's like 50 pages or something like that. And it's in really big letters. It's, it's really <laughs> like, you can, you can read it in 10 minutes. Or, like I said, you can read just one quote, like one page, and you can ponder it the rest of the week. It's just like, oh, yeah, but that's because some of the things, some of the things they said or like that were translated to, to give them extra meaning, I guess, it's like, it's really profound. And for me, it's always like all this philosophy work was basically done 2,000, 3,000 years ago. And we, like, as a society, did not move like forward or in any way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's there's some new philosophy, but yeah, especially like looking at the old philosophy, there's so much profound wisdom in there. And as you say, it's so hard to grasp. Like really, like when I when I read Tao Te King, especially like that was what I think that's like the most difficult book I would mm -hmm. say that I read. And like you read every sentence thrice or thrice, you read every page thrice, and then you read the whole book thrice, and then you know you have the feeling that you understand fifty percent of what's going on, and that's including you know reading all the annotations. But it's still 
somehow worth it because mm-hmm. like at least for me always at the end like i found that there was some like really profound quotes as you just said like to think about like i always remember from tao to king it has something to the effect of you know a good ruler is a ruler who you know who people don't see you people don't have to think about that just you know enables them basically a good life without having to intervene much because if they hear of you doing something it's usually because you have to fight something that's bad if they don't hear of you that means everything is going smoothly and there's nothing you know for you to do everything is good and i think about that a lot you can also think about that and like kind of terms of management i mean not really because you would want to have the one-on-ones and stuff but yeah Yeah. i think it's it's an interesting thought yeah no no it is and it it got me thinking just now (laughs) uh so so i'll i'll think about it and i'll let you think about something else Since, uh, yeah, I guess we, we should wrap up slowly. And I like always finish with, with um, this question. And it's like, if you would have to pick three things, and this can be either, I don't know, books or articles or videos or whatever, like three things that um, made you who you are or that, like, that, that you would really want to recommend to, to other people. All righty. So, um, as we just discussed, I can wholeheartedly uh, recommend the book Sophie's World to like anyone from the age of 12 until like 99 uh, or something, <laughs> because it really helped me form my, like, my thinking process and like who I am as a person. So, it's definitely one of the most influential books um, I read. Then, maybe a bit to go with that is. Um, well, not too really to go with that, but I read it about around the same time was, uh, I think in English, it's nothing new on the Western Front, um, which is um, a book about war, essentially. And that, I mean, not for the older people, because I hope most of them know like how horrible uh, war is. But for me at the time, it was uh, really good because at that time, I didn't understand like how horrible war really is. Yeah. And that, that book really, you know, hammers the point home. So I wish like, more people uh, would read it. But, uh, and then there's another more, more upbeat note. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is uh, Daniel Pink uh, Drive. You don't have to read uh, the whole book, but you can go on YouTube and there's an RSA animate to Daniel yeah. Pink Drive, which is like 10 minutes long. It's something that I watch every year. Interesting. And that, that ties back into uh, motivational theory. Uh, what we talked about before. So it's basically a newer, better, or like my kind of favorite theory about motivation. So it goes back to theory X and theory Y, and he actually talks about that uh, in the book, mm-hmm. and which basically says that that it has been proven that money is not a great uh, motivator. So money can actually, like when, you, when we talk about cognitive tasks, it can actually make your performance worse. Mm-hmm. So you kind of need to pay, pay better than the competition Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so better than average Uh, and then the three main points are autonomy mastery and purpose yeah and that's sort of what makes you happy and that's also how i you know evaluate every project every job you know i'm going like okay what's my potential for mastery there what's my autonomy there and what's my purpose there what am i doing yeah and that has really you know helped me hugely in I don't know, understanding people and uh, picking jobs. Did you read Punished by Rewards, uh, perchance? No, I did not. But that sounds good. 
I recommend it. It's it's by Alfie Cohn, and I I I've read it. Like it's one of the first books I read on my Kindle, and it's uh it's similar for I guess how you um like talk about Drive. I read it almost every year, or like I would say every second year. I I I have it on my Kindle. I have it as audiobook. I have it on like physical form. I have it in all forms. <laughs> um, and it's it follows like similar thing, and it's backed with a lot of science and data and everything. And for me, reading Drive was just like, oh, this is just reiterating that points, but in less scientifical way, uh, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that one, like, yeah, I can really recommend. And it's yeah, it it's the same thing. Like rewards don't work. Like everything that's extrinsic motivation, it works for really short term, but not if you want like a lasting change. And it's it's to me like reading books like that. It's so it, when you read it, it makes so much sense. And you're like, why did we ever think that extrinsic motivators is what we need? Right? It's just like it's it's bizarre. Like it never works. But why are we still using it everywhere? Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating. I love that. Like in this RSA animate, like it, they do it for a talk of uh, Daniel Pink, and they go and they say basically also like, oh, so what organization? did like this uh this research was some kind of like left communist organization and it was like i don't know the federal bank of america or something like that like the most capitalist institution (laughs) that you can think about it's like ah that you know that doesn't work yeah it's yeah mind-boggling yeah one one of my favorite quotes like we were talking about quote before and i have it i have it right here like um what's between a carrot and a stick a donkey do you want to treat your kids or employees <laughs> like donkeys? I sure hope not. <laughs> and it's like, uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, well, uh, Toby, thanks so much for your time. I, I had uh, I had so much fun recording this. And there are so many things uh, I wanted to discuss. But yeah, like <laughs> maybe you're, you're an interesting person. Maybe I should have you on again. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think it would be the first repeat guest, but uh, <laughs> I'd be happy to. Like I always, you know, I want to be on podcast. I mean, I like I like talking to people. I like talking about stuff. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely something I would enjoy, and I also enjoyed this uh, very very much. Thanks so much for inviting me and for having me. Yeah, thank you, thank you again, and uh, have a good day. Bye. <laughs> thank you. You too. All right. This was my interview with Toby. I would love if you would share this podcast with your friends and followings on your social mediums of choice. Retweet, like, repost, whatever. Every action helps. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, please post a review there. And if you used a different app like Breaker, Overcast, or anything else that supports liking or favoriting, I'd appreciate your reaction there as well. You can also financially support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash That's patreon.com slash P-A-R-P-A-S-P-O-D or open the show notes and follow the Patreon link there. Thank you. You can find the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We are at ParapassPod on all of them. All the links from this episode are in the show notes and on our website, parallelpassion.com slash 40. Thank you for listening and have a passionate day. Sorry, can I curse on this? Is, yeah, is this sure. okay? Okay, cool. Sure, no one listens to this. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs>